Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November 29, 2012, and this is episode 1030, 10.30 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, it's coming out a little bit late today because I had a, a guy from the audience come by. As some of you know, I've been a keeper of snakes for quite a long time, a amateur herpetologist, if you will, and I had... Uh, four very large snakes uh, still in my collection that I had decided I no longer wanted to have to be responsible for and care for anymore. And uh, this gentleman came by, and he's got enough experience with reptiles. I was happy to rehome them with him. Uh, that required quite a bit of my time. So I didn't get started recording today till after noon today. So that's why the show's out so late today. But we'll try to make it a good one for you. I uh, also had a guest fall through on me yesterday due to a work arrangement on his end. So I had to come up with a show for you, and I decided we're going to do the hands-off, self-sufficient bug-out location today. The true off-grid, out-in-the-middle-of-nowhere bug-out location. What would it be in a best-case scenario? And uh, how can we make it as productive as possible so that if we ever had to go there or use it for anything, it would be able to provide for us? And we're going to do this kind of a... A blue skyway today, like what would it be if it was perfect? And that way we can try to figure out if we're going to build something like this for ourselves, how close can we get? Because most of us will never get 100% of what I'm talking about today um, because it's kind of hard to do. But if you know what perfect is, then you can, again, shoot for the stars, so to speak, and see how close you can get. It should also be kind of a fun thing that will make you think a little bit today about how to uh, do similar things on maybe properties that aren't so remote. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today. If you're going to have an off-grid uh, homestead like this, you're going to want to see him. It's the Berkey guy, Jeff Gleason. Uh, because Berkey water filtration systems will make just about any water safe for you to drink. And why are you going to get your Berkey from the Berkey guy versus all of the other guys that sell Berkeys? Because he's the Berkey guy. Well, why would you go to anybody but the Berkey guy if you wanted a Berkey system? Uh, check him out today at Directive21.com. And the real reason to go to the Berkey guy is after three years, he's doing a good job still of taking care of this very demanding audience. I've never seen him fail to take care of a customer yet in all of these years. So check him out today. Uh, for Berkey water filtration systems and other great prepping needs, Directive21.com. Next up today, ShelfReliance.com. Like a shelf you put things on, not like self yourself. No, not self-reliance. Shelf-reliance. That's because they have innovative food storage solutions that allow you to eat what you store and store with you what you eat with self-rotating shelving. So you have your new canned food, you put it at the top, you pull your old one out the bottom, constantly keeps your stuff rotated, well-organized, and stored. Great big, huge systems like the Harvest 72 that can literally hold a half a ton of food down to little small systems that would fit in your pantry and your cupboard called the pantry and the cupboard. See how clever they are with names like that? Shelf-reliance. Pantry goes in the pantry, cupboard goes in the cupboard. Cool stuff, huh? Also, really a great long-term storage food option with the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. The biggest selection and some of the best-tasting stuff that I've ever seen in that realm. 
Check them out today. Again, ShelfReliance.com. Next up, remember to check out TSPGear.com for some really cool gear. Uh, Kelly tells me we just got in the Every Citizen of Sentinel t-shirts. I'm waiting for mine to show up. He says they are badass. He says they have come out better than you would have even expected. Um, I, I can't wait to get mine. That's something you should check out. Check out the patches, the stickers. Uh, they're doing a really good job. Some of the gear, you know, we're just getting it in. We're just ramping this thing up. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's ready to roll. And, uh, some of the stuff we will not be able to get out by Christmas, like the patches and all. Uh, we might, but we're not going to commit to it. But the stuff is coming up. We're bringing the stock in. Uh, check it out today. TSPgear.com. Check out TSPcopper.com. You order stuff there. Unless it's out of stock, it'll ship, you know, within the week you order it. So you can still get the copper in, uh, for Christmas time. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive uh, content available only to members. You get discounts to uh, about 34, 35 different uh, companies now. Uh, really good discounts that will pay for your membership in and of itself. And remember, I am running a lifetime membership right now, and it's closing tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow midnight, basically. $300 for a lifetime membership. That's for folks that want to do that. Uh, there will be a link in today's show notes where you can learn more about that. But it is a hard close now. Uh, Friday will be the last day for the lifetime MSB. Uh, don't send me an email that says put me on the list. You gotta follow the instructions so that I know how to basically bill you or tell you how to send payment. Uh, cause we're doing this one completely manually. Uh, even those paying by PayPal, we're doing it by a manual invoice so they don't freak out when they see a whole bunch of $300 charges come in directly. Because PayPal has been known to freak out when all of a sudden someone gets a, a, a large amount of automatic signups for something, uh, in, in that kind of uh, uh, amount of money. And they shut your account down and do all kinds of things to make sure it's not fraud. So we're just avoiding that by doing this all manually. All right, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Let me start out with, you know, why would you want to have a bug out location in the first place that's really in like a remote, wooded, tree, off-grid, you know, why would you want a place like that in the first place? Why why not go more with, you know, what I had when I had the homestead in Arkansas in the main house in, in Texas? It was just basically like a vacation home. And it had all the comforts of home, but yet it was far enough off the beaten track. And, you know, when we were living there full time, that, you know, you, you felt like you were a lot safer as a fallback location than you were in suburbia. Well... It all depends, I think. It all depends on what your goals are. And as my goals have changed, you know, let me put it this way. This is why I'm thinking this way now. This is why we're selling the Arkansas homestead. And I'm thinking down the road, I want a big old piece of rural land in the middle of nowhere that's completely off. It's not just off-grid. It's always going to be off-grid. It just ain't even worth it to put it on-grid. Why? Why would you want something like that? Well, the first reason to me is that I can pretty much do anything I want with no restrictions. I'm not going to be bothered. Um, even things that I'm supposed to maybe get a permit for, there's nobody there to know. No one cares. Everybody leaves you alone. There's no one to bitch, no one to whine. So free reign to do as you please. is, is And it's not 100%, but it's going to be better than anything that's on-grid. Absolutely anything that's on-grid. Any off-grid person can tell you there's at least a code or two that they're violating on a daily basis. And, and no one usually seems to care. That's true with water alone if you're in states like Colorado. We had a guy on, uh, Jack, uh, I can't remember his last name, Doty, I think, from Colorado. They said, yeah, technically all of us that are off-grid here are violating water ordinances, but nobody really seems to care. So you get that freedom. 
The other thing, though, is cost. When you find land, and I'm going to go into this more in just a bit, but if you find land that can't get certain things, it drives the price down. So if you can't get electricity to it, or if it would be very expensive to get electricity to it, for instance, a lot of buyers just, they go, oh, sorry, can't do it. Don't want to do it. Don't want to talk about it. Have no, you know, we're out. So it drives the price down. Um, but I think when you look at, if you ever get into a real desperate situation uh, with society as a whole, that that type of location is going to be infinitely more secure, infinitely more stable, and infinitely less likely to deal with riots and things like that. And I know that there's two schools of thoughts there, and one is the further out more remote you are, the easier you are to victimize because there's not so many people out there looking after you. But I feel like if you put together a good group, then you've got the ability to take care of that aspect of security for yourself. And the whole concept, to me, that if you get into a without rule of law scenario or an excessive rule of law scenario with pockets of without rule of law, which I think is a lot more likely than the, just a flat-out you know, road warrior everywhere, that people that are going to run around trying to find resources in these remote areas, it just doesn't make sense. Because when you are basically a locust, you don't fly out and eat three blades of grass in one backyard. You look for a field of wheat. That's how locusts operate. That's how they do so much damage. They go where the food is. And scum that want to steal and rob and murder and things like that go where the, the stuff is. They look for, they'll look for small towns and things like that. They'll look for cities. They'll look for suburbs. They'll look for places where they can get away with victimizing weak people where law enforcement is taxed to the max. To think that they can expend the resources to go through these remote locations where you may or may not find anybody. You may or may not meet with a, a lot of resistance if you do. And even if you find something, you don't know that you're going to find anything that's really of value. You can almost look at this like a biologist understanding fish. If you look at a largemouth bass and you look at everything that a largemouth bass eats... They're pretty small fish that are pretty easy for the bass to take. Because if the bass had to spend a lot of time in pursuit and burn more calories than it can take in through its feeding, then it's going to actually be in a caloric deficit. Eventually, you stay that way long enough, you lose weight, and then you die. So a bass has to set up and eat in a way that means I can maybe burn 10 calories to suck this little shad in, but the little shad is going to provide me with 50 calories. And if he breaks that rule, you got a dead bass. And the scum and the vehement people that would do the things that we're worried about have to live by the same rules. They can't, you know, the whole concept are going to be running up and down the roads and motorcycles and all, but nobody has any gas. But they can because they have magic motorcycles that get, yes, better mileage than a car, but it's still, you gotta have gas. And you can't, you know, here's the thing about a motorcycle versus this, this fantasy world people live in, okay? Yes, motorcycles can go a lot further on a lot less fuel, but they also carry a lot less fuel. Right? I mean, I can take a diesel truck, I can throw an 85 gallon reserve tank in the back of it. Uh, my truck has a, almost a 40 gallon, 38 and a half gallon tank. So I can throw another 80 gallons on that. I can drive across the country on, on that much fuel. 
A motorcycle ain't going to pull that off. I mean, we got to let go of some of these fantasies. But even if the fantasy world turns out to have some truth to it, those types of people have to go where there is a, 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 a concentration of resources. You can't risk you know, fighting four or five people on an armed uh, remote location to get only what those four or five people have and lose plenty of your own guys doing it. So I think even in the worst case scenario, that when you really look at reality, that this type of a, a remote location would be one of the safest places you could be. And I am not the person that believes that you go into this world and you stay there for years and years and years. I'm a person that believes that if that type of world comes, you'll see an excessive rule of law so fast your head will spin. It will be used to implement more tyranny and that... That, that without rule of law, timeline is a much shorter timeline than everybody that writes a book about it tends to, to gravitate towards. So that's the why from the worst case scenario. Now, best case scenario, why do you want land like this? Because you can go hunting. You can go fishing. You can go camping. You can do it on your own property. And you have a piece of land that will be worth a hell of a lot more than you paid for it when you're done with it. That's the big reason for me to do this. Imagine it worked like this, okay? And, and insurance products claim to work like this, but they never really do. Um, in fact, if this product actually existed, I would buy it. Let's say you're insuring your life against your house, okay? So you have a 30-year mortgage, so you have a 30-year term insurance policy. And let's say that the, the cheapest price you can get on that as a young person is $250 a year. And you're going to spend $250 a year for 30 years. That's $7,500 you're going to give the insurance company. Now let's say at the end of that 30 years, you're not dead. And let's say the insurance company at that point is willing to turn around and write you a check for $15,000. And give you double your money back. And then you can either buy more insurance or just keep the fifteen grand. Would you buy that insurance policy if you needed insurance in the first place? And the answer most people would give is yes, especially if it costs the same. Now, there's products that sort of kind of, in a way, work that way. You get your principal back or a little bit of interest on it, but there's nothing that gives you double and then keeps the cost down, right? Basically, they're taking a portion of it as an investment. You, you pay an elevated price. But if you actually could buy insurance that was the same price as 30-year term that gave you double your principal back at the end of the term if you didn't die, and insured your life during the term in case you did die, it would be a good product. I don't know how you'd stay in business with that product, but it would be a good product. That's, in a way, it's a, like the best analogy I can give you for having land like this. I've got this piece of land that I can do all these great things that we're going to talk about here in a minute, and the worst thing that happens is I hold on to it for a while and sell it for a profit in the future. That, but I get while it's here, and if I have the worst case scenario where I've got to have somewhere to go, I have something that can sustain me and take care of myself, my family, and maybe a group if I have a group put together. All right, so let's start talking a little bit about shopping for land. Um, I do think there's actually a lot of land like this available through somewhat conventional channels. Uh, like I'm looking on lands of Texas right now for land in Texas, you know, and that, that site has lands of Oklahoma, lands of Arkansas, lands of Florida, you get it, basically every state. And there's a lot of land out there that fits that description. Some of it seems like a really good deal. Um, if you want 200 acres of land in Texas right now for $14,000, I can find it for you. It will be near El Paso, it will be in the middle of the desert, and it'll be godforsaken, worthless country uh, that people will say is good hunting country and ain't even really that great of hunting country. 
So you got to be careful with these things, the junk land theory and all. When we get done, you're going to see that I'm not a big believer in the junk land, desert land scenario. If you want that, you can. I just think you're you're really making what's something that's difficult extremely difficult. You're 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 taking the quality of your soil down, uh, and you're also going to have a problem. This is one problem I don't like with the desert land thing. If you go in there and Jeff Lawton the place, man, you you green the desert. It's cool. But it's not a good bug out location because you can see for miles in the desert. And then there's this big green blob, right? This 200-acre green blob out in the middle of the desert. It's like turning on all the lights and saying, hey, there's something cool over here. So, I, you know, I think that that's not the way I would go, but I wouldn't fault you for it. But that's not what we're going to be talking about. And I want to throw a little bit in about owner financing. Um Owner financing terms used to be pretty awful. Um, you would find people with owner finance properties that would be charging 12, 13, 15%, uh, and they wanted very big down payments because they were basically only selling to people who they knew could not get a conventional bank loan. Um, with lending tightening up somewhat, especially on vacant land, I've seen a lot better deals with owner financing on vacant land. It's not as good as if you can get a bank loan for it or whatever. But I've seen decent deals. I've seen, you know, you know, 10% down uh, and on a property that's, you know, $30,000 property, $500 a month. It's basically a car payment. It's about the same as buying a car. And you work out and you, you know, you find out they're charging 6%, 5%, you know, for no headaches sign a piece of paper, shake a hand, done. It's not an exorbitant interest rate. And people, you got to understand, like, you got to look at interest rates this way. It's not about what you can get from a bank. It's about what's fair. What is a, you know, a good, fair market interest rate? And if five years ago, a 6% interest rate sounded fair or a 7% interest rate sounded okay, uh, to be able to get that now without dealing with all the other bullshit that goes with a bank loan and appraisals and everything else, Uh, and just make it between two people, it, it, it's, it's, it's a good deal now. So I, I don't say you're always going to find that or it's always going to be easy to find or you know, you're not going to find people that are still doing, well, it's X down and it's this for this many years and then a balloon payment at the end or you lose the whole thing. It, that kind of stuff's still out there. Be careful with it, but look for it. And one cool thing about the lands of sites, lands of Texas, lands of Oklahoma, et cetera, is you can filter property and only see owner financing. So, so check that out as well. Um, I'll tell you what you're looking for is you're looking for property that does not, for does not have four big must-haves for people. And these were must-haves for me finding my new place because we're going to live there, run a business there, that type of thing. But I'll tell you what, they're not must-haves when you're talking about a remote, self-sufficient, hands-off bug-out location. They're electrical grid access, so access to the electrical grid, access to phone service, telephone service, Grid water, so you know either county water or private water co-op or some kind of water uh, service, or you know an area where it's just known that hey, if you want to put a well in here, it costs X amount of dollars. You drill it, it's done, it's easy to do. Everybody else does it. Go on and get one. Um, so most people want to see either grid water or easy well installation. And they want to have it serviced by road frontage, serviced road frontage. In other words, there's some road that's maintained by the county, the city, the state, whatever, that, that you, know, you get to your property from. And when people are looking to build houses, and unless they want to do the remote off-grid homestead thing, those are four things that, they, that really 
are really important to people. And what that means is when you take away all four of them, your price per acre just plummets. In fact, a lot of times when I was looking at, because I was looking at different ways to get back to Texas, right? And one was, maybe we buy land and put a house on it. That was one of the options. And there was times when I would look at a piece of land and I would just go, it looks great. It's got this and that going for it. Look at the pictures and look at the price. And you see other properties in the area and you go immediately, this doesn't have one or all four of those things. Because the price is so dramatically different, you know, there's something wrong, so to speak. Now, when you're trying to put in a home that you're going to live in and run a business out of and things like that, those things are dramatically important to you. When you want an off-grid location in the first place, they become not so important after all. Um, and, you know, look at it this way. Even places where it's relatively easy to put a well in, a well pump's pretty heavy draw. If you can't get electricity in, that becomes a problem for a lot of people. So what does land like this really need to have to make it work for us in, in this scenario? Um, I think that one thing you have to have is you do not have to have service front uh, road fronts. You do not have to have a county or a city or a road, something like that. But you do have to have a guaranteed right of access to your property. There has to be some sort of guaranteed easement. Uh, something that's in perpetuity with additional landowners where even if they sell their land, you have access. So I'm, I would actually prefer not to have um, a state or city road of any kind uh, abutting my property in a, a property like this. Uh, but I want to know that via some sort of private road, I can always have access with a vehicle to the property. If I have to hike in, this is not going to work because I want to bring in materials. I want to bring in equipment to do certain things that human labor would take forever to do. And there are a lot of properties out there that are exactly like this. They have no... Um, no serviced road access, but there is easement granted from adjacent property owners. You need to make sure that that easement grant is legal, binding, and permanent. Because if it's just a you know a handshake uh, between the guy that owned the place and the guy that owns another place, and you're buying it, you're not part of that handshake. So you either have to, if it's not there, you can often say, I'll buy it, but you need to acquire this for me. You need to get this done for me. And that kind of takes away one of your big concerns, which is to be able to get in and out of your own daggone property. Now, is there a potential that in a without rule of law scenario that that guy all of a sudden might start charging you a toll or something? Because there's, there's potential for anything. But frankly, by that point, I'd be there already. You know, I'm talking about when I need to bring an excavator in to do some work. I want to be able to make sure I can get it in there. Okay, and one of the things you could do is when your excavator comes in, you could improve the road so that you continue to have good relations with the other landowners, be it one guy or ten people that all share. And a lot of times these private roads, too. You know, you're, there's maybe ten people that share access rights to that road or ten property owners that share access rights to that road. You want to be in good with these people. And one thing you can do is improve the road because it's good for everybody when you do that and you know when you got somebody coming with heavy equipment a little bit of grading here and there filling in some potholes and all is good for you and good for relations so guaranteed right of access the next thing i would say that you have to have for this type of property and i would say this is a must-have surface water or the ability to create it uh pond rivers stream spring i would or you know the land will hold water. Putting it a pond will work, period. 
You just know it because you can look on Google Earth and there's ponds all around you and you go out and look at the soil, maybe you have a little soil testing done by a contractor or whatever. You, either you have surface water or you 100% know you can create it. We're talking about off-grid location here. Without water, we're done. So we've got to have that. The next thing is decent soil. Um, I wouldn't try to do this in a place that's completely been destroyed, uh, debilitated, or just is just bad soil. You know, you go out and you kick it and it's like pig pen dust. Um, I'm all about healing the land with permaculture. I know we can do that. But this is a place that you're not going to live on. You're not going to be there that often. You only have so many inputs you can put into it. You've got to have something decent to start with. So, um, you know, I've made my land really beautiful in Arkansas, but I wouldn't want that type of land uh, with the granite and rock outcroppings and everything uh, and such thin soil uh, and the terrain there. I wouldn't want that as this kind of hands-off place unless I had a much bigger piece of land. Uh, which we'll get to in a second as well, because when you get more land, you can get away with more things. And if you have like a hundred acres, odds are, you know, ten of it are going to be relatively flat, no matter where you have that hundred acres. Not always. Don't buy that junk-free land on, you know, eBay, sight unseen. So decent soil is kind of a must-have. It doesn't have to be perfect or great. Just something to start with, right? You don't, you don't have the ability to be bringing in 400 tons of topsoil into places like this. Um, I also think that there needs to be trees on a property like this. Um, significant trees. I would not want to buy old pasture for something like this. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. You're going to have all kinds of stuff going on here, and you're not going to be there to look after it. If it's open land, and everything around it's open land, and most times if you've got pasture, it's all pasture around it, then what you're doing is really obvious, and the fact that you're not there is really obvious. So I want this treed in, and I want other on-site resources there that can be harvested as well, whether it's rock, whether it's sand and gravel. Like I've seen some really nice properties, and you go down to the creek, and the creek is just sandy, and there's gravel, and you go, what would you do with that? Sand and gravel. Well, you bring in a few bags of cement, and guess what you got there? Ready-made concrete. Um, so, you know, look for resources that are there. You want as many resources on site as you can. With the trees, um, it gives you the potential to do things like bring in a guy with a chainsaw mill and, and mill a lot of lumber out of your own trees and use a lot. So, so you know, if you go in a heavily treed property and you're going to put it into a productive state, some of them trees are going to come out. You're going to have to open up some parts of it. And you might as well open it up and take out some of the stuff and get building material in addition to firewood and things like that out of the trees on the property. So that's something like uh, reasonable terrain. You don't want the outside of a mountain. You don't want a cliff face. Yeah, land like that can be really cheap per acre, but there's a reason. You need relatively level land. Good slopes and things are fine. We can work with those. They can be an advantage. But it needs to be manageable slope. Right. If you wouldn't run down it, you probably don't want it. If running down it will get you killed, it's probably too steep. If running down it will get you hurt severely, it's probably too steep. That'd kind of be a way I'd just kind of make it easy to understand for you. Um, the next thing is good solar access. If it is sloped, but it's sloped on, let's say, the north side of the hill, where you get almost no solar access at all, I, I, I wouldn't want that. So I want south-facing as ideal, 
east or west can work depending on the climate, the biome, everything else going on with it, and what what's on adjacent properties that shades it out and all. But you want to take that into account, and you want good solar access because it it does so much for you. Um, Minimal regulations, so as, as, as far out and unincorporated as you can get, and absolutely no restrictions. A piece of property like this cannot have any restrictions whatsoever on it. Regulations and restrictions are different things. Regulations are with the state, the county, etc. says. Restrictions are specific to a property or an area. So a restriction, for example, would be you can't have chickens. Now, this property ain't going to have chickens, but that's an example. There's nothing as far as the state of Texas is concerned or the state of Oklahoma is concerned or the most counties and cities or whatever, unless it's the urban areas, that says anything specifically about forbidding the possession of a chicken. So if a place does have a chicken prohibition, that's been done specifically to the area. And you want a place with none of that. You don't want this, you know, you can't build a house under X square feet is another example. Or can only be site-built homes, can't be mobile homes. I don't care what it is. You don't want any. It, not even because you're going to do this, but because if restrictions exist, sooner or later you're going to run into one of them that's going to matter to you. And if you're going to have be this remote and this off-grid anyway, why the hell should you have to deal with it? So no restrictions and minimal regulations. So you want to find the freest areas of the places you can look the most freedom from anything. And again, if you get remote enough, even the ones that exist often aren't enforced because no one knows or gives a damn anyway. Okay, so that's... You want wildlife. You absolutely want wildlife. Um, as as, a, as a, you know, a permaculturist this year, toward the end of the year, the deer in my property have become the bane of my existence. Um, there's some things I could do to minimize them because, you know, and I would if I was staying... Uh, and by the way, again, guys, my house in Arkansas is going up for sale soon. If anybody's interested, it's a beautiful place. The price is awesome. Uh, there's nothing like it in the area for the price. It really isn't. And I can tell you how to keep the deer at bay. Um, so, But you're not going to be gardening. So there's things with trees and bushes and shrubs. And there will be some loss to your productivity due to wildlife. But the wildlife themselves more than make up for it. I would say <laughs> the... The thing you could do that would be the, the almost instant place that would provide at least food for you is if you can find river bottom land with feral hogs on it and a good population of oak trees with acorns. If you've got that, because I'll tell you how you, you, you deal with the hogs. You trap them. You can set up traps with hogs that are like basically a fenced-in area with a door that will drop, and you keep throwing feed in there for a few days. And then you set up a thing way in the back, so you end up catching five, six. Some, so I've seen traps catch ten hogs at once. And uh, that's instant meat that you ain't going to run out of. There have been people trying to eliminate the damn things since they became feral. You ain't going to hunt them into extinction. You ain't going to pressure them out. The sows breed multiple times a year. They drop six to ten or more piglets every time. They start breeding at six months of age. They're literally a disease on the land, and they're a good disease because they taste good when you roast them. You can eat little ones. You can eat big ones. The little ones taste better. Uh, you know, uh, I tell you, the little ones taste a lot better. The big old boars aren't real good, and the big older sows... You know, that are a couple of years old, they're, they're kind of ranked too. But the medium, the small ones, yummy. And I mean, if you wanted a turnkey self-sufficient homestead, 
right? If you can put some kind of a structure that you can at least live in, and you can find a place with with a creek or river bottom um, that has fish in it and has feral hogs, you're good. I mean, it can be just that, and you're you're good. And that that would be kind of a, a home run. Uh, if there's catfish in there that you can trot line or jug fish for, and you've got feral hogs, you are not going to go hungry. Period. You just ain't. And if you got the water, you can do something with that water to make it drinkable. Uh, and you've got the water, you've got cooling. There's there's so much that brings to the table. That would be the home run. That's kind of what I'm looking for. Uh, if I can get something on, on river or creek access, heavily wooded, hogs and deer and fish, that's grand slam. So now we've kind of talked about it. Let's, let's go to the perfect. What is the perfect piece of property? If it, you get every, you take every box. River or stream on it, like I just said. Um, but also a natural spring on it. If you find a uh, natural spring on a property, that spring water is cold comparative to even a, a creek or a river usually, especially in the south. That is a source of cooling. You put in a spring house and you can have basically refrigeration for free. Uh, and that is huge. Spring water also gives you the potential to do a little moonshining. Now, I'm not saying to do it in peacetime, but in wartime it might be highly valuable. Cold water is key to making good moonshine for your condensing. Just saying, you know, whether it would be for ethanol production or medicinal purposes. Uh, but a spring is a huge value. Uh, at least the perimeter heavily treed. I would want someone standing uh, 50 yards away from the property line of this place to see nothing but woods. I, I mean, I just want it to look like nothing but any other place out there. It doesn't look like nothing back there. Uh, so at least the, the perimeter would be heavily treed. Uh, it would have native plants that are edible, uh, as many different species and varieties and much seasonality as possible. So that even if I'm going to go in there and plant things and start putting production in, it's already going to be able to provide for me at a base level the day I show up. If I show up and I know how to wildcraft, I know how to forage, I know how to hunt, and I know how to fish, this land better be able to put food in my stomach today, now, if it's a really good piece of property. If I'm going to give up electricity, I'm going to give up conventional water, I'm going to give up having a phone line, a cable TV, all that stuff, For a piece of property like this, I got to get something back right away. And if I can't put meat on the table, I'm not getting enough back. All right. Um, the next, you know, obviously, the good population of wild game goes with that. Uh, and I think larger is better. Uh, when you get into this type of property, it's it's actually kind of weird. You can find like two acres of it, and it'll cost like fifteen thousand dollars. And you can go find thirty acres of it, and it'll cost like forty thousand dollars. You know, you go from paying $15,000 or $7,500, $8,000 an acre down to $1,000 an acre by buying a bigger piece of land. Uh, so one, there's just more for your money, even though the overall cost goes up. But when we're trying to build a piece of land like this, we want as much buffer as we can get around it. If I can get, you know, a 30-acre piece, and I'd say 10 is a minimum for property like this, but I get a 30-acre piece, you know, I, I can use eight of it as a belt, that just looks like thick, nasty, gnarled crap. And there's a couple different ways in that you kind of have to know to weave your way in and out of. And then the inside of that, I've got another 20-plus acres that I'm actually utilizing a little bit more, opening up a little bit more here and there. Man, I mean, you, you, you almost wouldn't even know it was there 
unless you really look for it. And that's kind of what you're going for. You also get just a huge amount of climate moderation. It cuts your harsh winds in the winter. It keeps the property cooler in the summer. Uh, it's just a nicer place to be. It provides habitat for all that wildlife you're concerned with out off of your center of activity when you are there so that they still have a place to retreat, but they're still on your property. That means they're still your wildlife, if you get my drift. Um, so that's why I think bigger is better. I'd say about 50 acres is ideal if you can make it work. Uh, 50 acres is a daggone big piece of land. Uh, I, I don't think most people understand how big a 50-acre piece of wooded land is. It, it, it's immense, and it's enough to sustain a group fairly well, uh, whether it's a small family or a small group. And I think that this is a place where you can start looking at groups. And I think part of the reason you can start looking at groups with this type of land is you're not going to be stockpiling. We'll get to this. You're not going to be stockpiling thousands and thousands of pounds of food at a place like this. Uh, you're probably not anyway. Um, you're not going to be doing a lot of high-dollar stuff on the property. And the stuff that you do want to do that we're going to get to, a lot of times it's going to be stuff you're going to hire someone to do so you split the cost. So you're not going to deal with people upset that one's doing less than the other or more than the other. I still think you've got to take this very carefully when you start doing the group thing. Uh, I'm so big in a community, I want to be a guy that recommends groups. But I think I've seen a lot of people lose relationships um, over a bug-out location or a deer lease. And you got to be really careful with how you're doing it. I think everything that's going to be critical as far as responsibilities and, and, and uh, obligations needs to go in writing. A lot of times when people are dealing with family and friends, they think putting things in writing is a bad idea. Let me tell you, it's the one time you better put it in writing. Because here's what happens. Oh, we didn't agree to that. Oh, you're, you, I, that's not what I said. Okay? When you have something in writing, you can pick it up and you can say, let's just see what we agreed to. And you might find out even that you're the one that's wrong. And it's really easy then. We've agreed to this, right? Yes, we did. That makes things much cleaner. So be careful with that. But I say 10 acres minimum. And if you can get on creek bottom with 10 acres, where you can put a boat in and go up and down, and you've got, you know, most states anyway, as far as I know, every state, but definitely most states, once you're on water, even if you're going through private property, if it's navigatable water, you cannot, like, say you can't come down my stream or can't come down my river in a boat. It's not, it's not permitted. You have open access to the waterways. Um, so that expands things. And if you get 10 acres on river or creek bottom that's navigatable by boat and it's not far away from, let's say, a float up or down stream a little bit, and you have access to something like national forest or state forest or state game lands or something like that, it even opens it up a lot bigger. Okay, It's, it's just a really, that would be another big home run without going with a huge piece of land. But 10 acres minimum, bigger is better for something like this. Um, some ideas for setting things up. Uh, every time I go to a, a kind of like a permaculture thing and I talk to people, uh, one of the questions I get is, you know, if we're just getting some land and we're going to have it remote and we're not going to be there all the time and we only have so much money, what is the first thing that we should do? Should we start planting this or planting that or no, you don't plant anything? Swales and ponds and swales and ponds and then swales and ponds. As many as you can put in, as fast as you can put them in, as accurately as you can put them in, into the landscape, get it, get the heavy equipment in, do it all in one shot. Heavy equipment costs a lot of money to bring out. 
but adding a day to how long it's there is not usually a big charge. Usually a, a piece of equipment and an operator somewhere around $500 a day. You know, there's a trip charge out and a trip charge back, but if you have to keep them there an extra day and spend another $500, bucks, it's $500 bucks well spent. Ponds take a lot of work to construct. They take a lot of time. It's, they have to be done really, really with a lot of care. Uh, that dam has to be basically taken down and then built up. A keyway has to be put into it. It has to constantly be compacted. So the ponds are labor-intensive. But swales, a good excavator operator can put in swales like crazy. You have everything marked out. You know where your level lines are. There's a pond here that's going to fill and backfill the swale. And you can put in miles of swale on a property like this. Um, and you can do it you know, in, in a couple of days. It's very inexpensive. Swale mounds are not compacted. All you need to do is compact the level sill at the end. In most places, that's you know, your operator taking the bucket and putting it down and pressing down about one meter uh, at the end of a, a swale where you want the overflow to go. Easy and fast. A swale, for those that are not familiar with this, haven't heard me talk about earthworks before, is a level ditch. That's all it is. A level ditch, major ups, you know, upsize swales for this type of earthworks. You're talking about a yard deep, about three feet deep by about six foot wide. And all the dirt that comes out of it goes on the downhill side and is loosely packed. You plant into that and you plant downhill from that. Water hits that and goes nowhere. It just stops dead butt cold until that swale completely fills up. And it gently overflows the sill. It will not blow out. It will not cause erosion. It stops erosion. And it will go down to your next swale and do it again and again and again and again. It will fill your ponds. It will hydrate your land. It will eliminate the need in forested systems anyway for irrigation of any kind eventually. So swales and ponds. It gives you surface water, which we've got to have, right? And it gives us irrigation by holding the water in the land. And it, it, it's something that once you do it, it's done. You don't have to do it again. So swales, ponds, more swales and ponds, step one. Plant food forest and do so heavily. Whatever's, don't try to get too creative with the rain tree catalog. Rain tree nursery is awesome. I love looking at their catalog. But if there's something there that grows in Canada really well and you're in you know, Louisiana, probably ain't going to work well for you. Figure out the most productive bushes, trees, shrubs, vines that will grow in your area and plant the crap out of them. Plant as much as you can afford, and whenever you can afford more, plant more. Put the bones in first. That's the earthworks. Then go in with food forest establishment. Uh, you will lose some things to hogs and stuff like that. The good news about wild hogs versus deer is low fencing keeps them out. So if you put in 100 square meters uh, of forest and you need to keep the hogs out of there for a while at least until you get the thing up, You can fence that in with low, you know, deer fence, not deer fence, low like horse fencing or, you know, basically just T-post fencing. And it doesn't have to be done really nice and tight because you're going to take it away and move it later anyway. But plant the hell out of it and keep planting it. I don't care if there's a lot of productive things there. You bring the production in. You know, in Texas, I'm going to do things on my property, uh, my residential property, like figs, pomegranates, pecans, almonds, That would work well in this remote location as well, in that biome, in that region. You know, um, as much productivity as you can, as fast as possible. The things that are closest in the way the climates they like to what naturally already is growing there. Forget annuals. 
On this property, forget annuals. Unless it's like clover as a cover crop and a nitrogen provider, or when you put swales in covering it with cowpea and stuff like that, that's fine for a cover crop to hold it while the, the foresting stuff uh, takes, takes place. But that's you plant it, it grows, it dies, and the, the, the forest stuff takes over. This is not an annual system. There's going to be no garden on this property. A person that walks out there, it doesn't know to look for, for, should look at this property and just go, it's a bunch of trees and bushes. It shouldn't even realize that anything is really being maintained. Anything that's a garden needs to be weeded, needs to be turned over, needs to be harvested. You can have an area that's a designated future garden spot if you go there to live permanently for some long-term, grid-down, end-of-the-world apocalypse zombie scenario that I don't think is going to happen. Set it up, that's fine, but it ain't going to happen in a remote location. This is a property that you may get to five, six, seven times a year. Uh, maybe more, maybe less. I would try, though, based on my experience having two properties, to get the distance down to three hours or less, two would be better. Two hours out to a property, you can run out on Saturday morning, spend all day fishing there, tidying some things up, checking on the place, and, and be home for supper. Um, five hours ain't going to happen. Five and a half, which is about what ours was, um, it was really hard. It was really hard. It was always an overnight. And that makes certain things have to happen whenever you go, and that reduces it. So, um, Next, I would try to set up some sort of hard metal building with a metal roof. Um, I don't care if you just basically build a little cabin or, or what have you, but I want a metal roof on it. I want a metal roof because I know I can catch water off that roof, and that, that water is going to be potable. I'm going to be able to use that water for drinking uh, with very minimal filtration just in case something happens to it while it's in a tank. And the next thing I'm going to do, obviously, is I'm going to then harness that, and I'll put in about 2,500 gallons of water catchment. Uh, so you can get a 2,500 gallon tank for a couple thousand bucks from tractor supply, get a black one so nothing will grow in it, set it up on something elevated enough to get some pressure out of the bottom, and now you've got water beyond your pond and your stream that's directly usable with some pressure behind it. Uh, another way to do this that might be a little bit better, as long as you can hide it and not make it real visible from anybody that would be passing by, is put in a, more of a true water tower scenario and maybe put up something like four or five so 500-gallon tanks. So that's 2,000 gallons of water as close to the roof line as you can get them and still feed the water in. That gets you even more pressure. Another way to put pressure on water is you can move water downhill at even the slightest grade with amazing ease. Uh, so if you have a place where you're catching the water and that's where you want to use the water, but there's a slope going uphill away from that, you can run gutter or pipe off that roof, even down on the ground and back up. Wherever the hole is is the bottom. All right. So a way to explain that for you. okay? If you take... Um, uh, a water hose and put it into a bucket as long as the end of the hose is below the, the level of the hole in the bucket water is going to come out of even if the hose goes up first right? or even if it goes down below and back up as long as that, that hole at the hose is lower than the hole in the bucket you're going to get water pressure out the other end so what you can do is put your tank up on a hill almost as high as you can get it and still allow some downward grade off of the roof and then get all of that pressure back down to the house as you draw the water back in or back down to uh, 
the shack or whatever it is that you put in. So just think that you don't necessarily have to have your water catchment right up against the structure. You can channel the water over, and as long as it's as long as it's still a little bit downgrade from the, the roof eave, you can fill that stuff up all day long off that roof water. And then you've got pressure, and maybe you want the water somewhere else. So you can think about that whenever you're looking at a property, small or large, with rain catchment. Remember, always you can move water uphill for or downhill for free, and it always takes energy to get it to go uphill. Um, I would also use a lot of coppicing and pollarding to harvest wood. This is where we cut a tree at the right time of year of the right species. We know it's going to grow back. And basically, we always want to cut those trees at the time of the year when rainfall is heavier than evaporation. So that means the wet season. right? But that's really what we're looking for. Because a lot of times people think, well, it's summer or winter. It's based on your climate whenever you have more rain than evaporation. In other words, whenever you've got the time of year where the ground is always a little bit moist. There's always something down there you don't have to water. And for us, a lot of that does come in the winter. But not everywhere in the world. And we have a global audience, so I want to be clear on that. I think it would be a great place to work with earth-walled structures. Um, Jeff Lawton, I'm going to get him definitely, and we'll get him on tape doing this. I can't. It's in the PDC that I have on DVD, and I can't find it. I've been through the dang thing like 20 times now, like skipping each section trying to find it, where he did one, an earth-walled home, and basically he, he dug out what looked like a sea in the ground to become a pond, and then dug out... A, took all of that dirt and just put it in the same shape above ground as a berm uh, so that the sea was basically like made like a circle. Okay, so like think of it, you have a hole, with like a, it's hard to do with this audio, but you've dug out a crescent-shaped pond. You've taken all the dirt out of that pond and you've used it to build a mirror image wall, an open sea wall, So that you have, if you take your two hands like you're making a, a frontward C and a backward C, you make a circle, pull them apart so they're facing each other like that. All right? Then they cut cypress trees. So they made this C-shaped earthen wall. And it was really compactable dirt. They packed the hell out of it. And they took the excavator and they just cut the walls straight with the excavator on the inside. And it just was just, there was nothing else holding it up. Just rammed earth. They took cypress branches and they made a roof across the top of the sea. So you have an open front house, basically, earthen structure. It's going to stay cool and it's going to stay warm. It's never going to be that cold in there. And then you know you can build a front on it and whatever. Well, the reason they did it this way is they, they put a garden in, a survival garden, that was going to be protected from people and from uh, predators, you know, deer, and, and this was in Australia, so kangaroos. And then you only had to fence from the edge of the house to the edge of the pond. So that created this fenced-in area. It was a pretty cool thing. And I know I didn't really do a good job of describing that. Maybe I'll do a video myself where I describe it as I remember it on the whiteboard for you. But my point is we don't always have to have earth bags and earth ships and all this stuff. You can actually build semi-permanent structures just by piling up and ramming earth. If you think about how many places there are where there's a great big dirt pile, It's been there for a hundred years, and it ain't going nowhere. right? Now, you have to be careful with these things, and reinforcing them eventually is a good idea, but it can be done. So earthen structures are, are things that can be done here. Um, I would also try to put in something subterranean. I would love, I mean, 
I think the best thing you can do is have some kind of an underground structure, whether it's burying a shipping container and framing it out, whether it's doing it with a cinder block structure, whether it's an old-fashioned, uh, what do you call it, root cellar. I, I don't care what you do. I think having an underground structure is almost a requirement in this type of situation, at least in the heat of the day when it's completely miserable. There's a place to go that's cool. There's a place to store stuff, and there's a place that's hidden, And there's a place to hole up in really severe weather events. So if you can get an underground structure in a place like this, it's something that I would put very high on the list. Um, the next thing is I would set up high-capacity wildlife feeders. Uh, so I would want to be feeding my deer and my hogs. I would want to be making them come and, and become accustomed to it and to the point where it's almost not hunting anymore, to where the feeder goes off, they show up. It's so regular. It's all year long. The reason I want to do that, Yeah, this is not so I can be on the front of Texas sportsmen holding up a big rack deer. This is because this place is supposed to make me self-sufficient. It's supposed to put food on my table. It's supposed to feed me. Okay. So what that means is if I have to go out there at any given time of the year and I have to rely on it, I can feed myself. And this is not about in peacetime, but in, in you know time of uh, of turmoil, damn the game laws because everybody else is going to feel that way. So. I have to know that if I show up there in March or September that I can feed myself if it ever comes to it. And that's one way I can ensure that I can do that. And the good news if you live in a place with feral hogs is in most places anyway, there's no restrictions on that. And that means anytime you go out there, you can maybe put one of those up in the larder. Um, and, man, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy eating feral hogs, almost as much as I enjoy shooting them. I don't know what it is. I mean, you know, I enjoy hunting deer and I, I like to shoot deer, but there's always a twinge of regret to, to take an animal that's that beautiful and take its life. There's always a certain a trade-off there, an understanding, you know, and a, a respect. And I, it's not that I don't respect the feral hog. It's just I don't feel any remorse when I shoot one of them things. I just they're just ah, uh, I, I don't know what it is about. Them. I don't I don't want to say I hate them. But I have a certain level of animosity for them that can only be rectified by burning them on mesquite and turning them into something delicious. But I want high-capacity feeders so that I can set those things up and have them going off for a very long time before I have to go refill them. If I have ponds with fish in it, I want to set up feeders that also feed my fish. If I have river access, as long as it's legal, I probably want to set up a feeder. And I want to be careful with this so that it's not so obvious to somebody floating by in a canoe of what's going on unless they happen to hit it at just the right time when the feeder goes off. But I'd like to, I would feed the fish as well in the stream or the river. Why? I'm chumming every day. Just a little bit. Just a couple second bursts of some fish pellets in there. Um, that place is literally going to be swimming with fish when I show up. So it's there if I need it. Again, this is not about sportsmanship. Right? I'm going to get people today, I'm a primitive hunter and I only use a recurve and I can't believe you would hunt over a feeder. This is, this is making wildlife as close as we legally can into livestock. This is livestock that takes care of itself. In some states, some of this stuff is illegal, period. In some states, it would then make it illegal to fish or hunt. You have to figure out for your own self where you're at. In Texas, we don't have such restrictions. Right? If you're not big on hunting over feeders, you can feed on one piece of property and hunt in another area. Right? You don't have, but this is about having livestock that's self-sustaining and takes care of itself. You're giving it a little input, 
You're not doing 100% of the inputs. It's not like a cow where we've got to provide 100% of its needs. We're going to provide maybe 5% of the needs of a deer. But that means we can have a herd of 100 of them that are on our property on and off. And that means we have a very sustainable meat supply. So I want to be clear about why I'm talking about doing things this way. Um, I also think we need to build functional things that can't be removed, stolen, vandalized, etc. And what I mean by that is if I go out and build use stone and rock, and I build a great big, um, would, would amount to an outdoor kitchen with it. So I've got a place where I can have fire, I have a place where I can roast, I have a place that can act like an oven, I have a place where I can grill, and it's all built out of rock and steel that's built into the rock. Somebody could find it, and most of what they would be likely to do is think, there's nobody here, let's hang out and use this guy's grill. I ain't happy about it, but it ain't really hurt me none. They ain't going to pick it up and run away with it now, are they? You know, if I put a barbecue, you know, what do you call it, char grill barbecue out there with a couple propane tanks, and they come along and find that, they're likely to throw it in the back of their truck and take it away. But if you build a couple ton structure out of rock and steel, it's going to be there when you show up. And even if they're going to damage it because they're just that kind of jerk, they're only going to get so far with something like that. So... I think that anything that you can build or create that's functional and permanent is the way to go. And an outdoor kitchen type area, fire pits, things like that, really a good idea. Really a good idea to do that. And you could even build a propane burner into something like that. Because how much effort does it take to bring in a couple cans of propane? Or even store some on site underground where it's hard to find and just hook it up whenever you need it. Um, even a large tank propane could be well concealed and simply run a line and hook it up when you need it. Or a large tank to fill a small tank. I mean, you got to think for yourself here a little bit and adapt it to what, you know, what works for you. But I would try to make sure that most of the stuff that lives there is difficult, if not impossible, to steal. Just, it's not practical to steal. What are you going to do? You're going to go out and, just, you know, think about the type of structure I'm talking about here. Great big mortared rock kitchen, just where you throw wood in it and burn it and, and, and cook on it or what have you or roast on it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, steal that? Are you going to bring out a 40-ton you know, excavator, dig it out of the ground, put it in the back of a uke truck? Take. I mean, that's the kind of thing to build. It's stuff that, do, that when somebody does find it, there isn't much they can do with it other than use it. And, you know, you solve that as you need to. Um, if you really wanted to get fancy and you really had access to excavators and you could afford them long term, I would earth fence the entire property. And, and I, I, the entire property is not the way to, that I would really say this. I would step back off the property line. So I'd have my belt of just normal trees. And then I would create a, kind of an opening in the trees and in that opening I would build basically hugel culture okay it's the best way to think big Sepp Holzer style hugel culture mounds but it would go all the way around a property all the way around in some places they would overlap so it would look continuous to the eye but if you walked up on it you'd actually be able to get in by going like you'd, you'd, you'd come in you'd make a, a left and you'd make a right and you'd be into the property And you could easily fence that with conventional fencing, and you could make it sweeping and wide enough that large vehicles could get in and out of it. 
Now here's where it gets really interesting, right? You got to do this and you got to think about this, and it's something you really have to, to to study before you commit to doing it, so that you don't flood yourself out when it rains. You want to make sure there's ways for water to flow in and out and be managed by all your swells and everything. You don't want to turn yourself into a big giant dirt fish tank, but you you build this perimeter, so you've got a belt of land that you own that's in timber, and then you've got this belt of hugelkultur mounds. Guess what you do with the hoo culture mounts? On the side that faces you, you plant it with productive edibles, permanent edibles, bushes, trees, vines. Doesn't matter what. It looks like a big mess. But it, there's plenty there to be harvested. And the amount of food produced in that alone could be enormous. And we could put trees in, in this thing, especially at the tops, things like pecans and almonds and whatever, overstory. On the side facing the world, do you know what you plant there? Briars, brambles, nettles, some stuff that's actually productive and useful, but the stickiest, thorniest, nastiest crap that you can get your hands on. Something that unless a person absolutely knows why, they won't even bother. There's a big-ass hill here in the way, and it's covered in stuff that'll rip me to shreds. That, and now you've got a little fortress, don't you? Now, is this going to keep out the the evil hordes or whatever? No, but it's gonna it's gonna do a lot to keep the casual vermin out. And if you ever do need to defend a property like that, you've got a tremendous advantage. It could even be done in a series. A very large property, a 50 acre property, you could have a 10 acre belt, 10 acres of it giving you a beltway of, of bushes. And you got a 40 acre central property, and you could have this bed system going all the way back down with a 40 acre surrounded that way. You could come down inside it again at a 10 acre level, or maybe even just a five or a four acre level, and have two layers like that. Hugely productive in food, low irrigation requirement due to the hugelkultur effect. Basically, you fence the entire property, and the only material you ever bring in is small gates wherever you want to make openings in and out at. You're building the fence with dirt. And it will work, and it will last a hundred years or more. And it will produce productivity. And if you'd ever came to it, you learned this in the military. The best thing in the world for stopping bullets is earth. You've got bulletproof fencing all around your property, and the only cost is an excavator operator. That's a job even that might be worth if you know how to run an excavator, renting one and doing it yourself, or actually if you have a group and you're working on a larger property, maybe buying a used excavator or even a backhoe because you can take your time doing a job like this. And where does the trees come from? You cut them down where you're building the earth mound. Where's the dirt come from? You take it and you build it up from, from both directions. Works really easy. I've seen it done by Sepp. First thing I thought of when I looked at the Hugo mounts he built was, oh my God, imagine that all the way around the property. Especially a remote property covered by trees and then running into that. What an awesome idea. Um, the next thing is you want one way in that's like an apparent way in. Like anybody that really walked around it would think there's only really one way in, and, and, and that would be the same apparent way out. But you want actually many ways out. You want many lines of ingress and egress, but you want them to yourself because we will get here to the tactical component. 
that if you ever were attacked or aggressed upon or whatever, you want to be able to have multiple fallback locations, multiple ins, multiple outs, but yet you would want the, the, the potential attacker or invader to be kind of funneled through certain areas that you would expect. And it would be natural for them to, to come in through, including maybe more, more than one or two to give them the apparent belief that, oh, they won't expect this. So think that way tactically. I can't go deep into that. We're already almost out after an hour already on this one today. Um, I also think that really the best way to do this is use a compound approach. And what I mean by a compound approach is don't try to build a big building on it. So you're much better off with little shacks, little buildings, things like that, and kind of distributed throughout the property. Because that way, again, if you're ever ingressed upon, you've got multiple places to kind of hole up and to make defensive stands. But you also split up whatever you are storing. Anything you are storing is kind of split up. It's a little bit more difficult for a person that's worried. Hey, is somebody going to come back here? You know, when people are stealing, they don't generally, you know, set up and, you know, put up an umbrella and kick back and listen to the radio. There's generally a certain level of apprehension that, hey, we need to get this done and get out of here. The more you break things up like that... But the other side of this is if you need to heat or cool something and you start using you know, creative ways to do that, a smaller structure is easier to do that with. If you want to put a little bit of solar power in, have some electricity, bring a generator with you when you go out there, what have you, a small place to sleep in. Maybe you even have a window you've put into it, and you bring with you a small window unit air conditioner. You pop that in there. It's much easier to cool these small structures, which brings me to my, my ultimate idea for this to really take it over the top. Tiny houses. You know the tiny houses if you want to put on a trailer, right? If you built one of those and, and then whenever you went out there, you just hooked it up behind your truck and took it out there with you, how badass would that be? It's better than an RV. Um, I have become a convert away from RVs by owning one. I don't think they're terrible in and of themselves, but man, when I look at what people do with the little tiny house structures, and if you had two of them and you take that compound approach and you ever had to go there long term and you got two vehicles that can tow, And you, you show up, put up, hook up, you got your solar and, and everything else contained, and you've got your water catchment out there. I mean, you literally would have the ability to roll up onto a place like this and be very sustainable for a very long period of time. Again, what I've described today, for many of us it might seem like a pipe dream, but I think it's closer than a lot of people realize. And that's kind of my view of what would be perfect. Your view of what would be perfect might be different. And you might be right. We both might be right. Uh, today's show was really kind of a, just a way to get you thinking about what's possible and how sustainable you could make an off-grid place, especially if it's not a place that's really supposed to be for permanent residence. But I'll tell you what you can't beat when it comes to this is feral hogs, a river bottom, and catfish. If you can get those three things working for you, man, you've really got something. Um, and especially if you can get water on the property that you can put a boat on and it's navigable water, um, that has a potential even in the long term to be extremely valuable. Uh, even in like the long term grid down scenarios that I don't think are highly likely, you know, I'm the person that says they're not likely, but it could happen. And, uh, That would be extremely advantageous uh, from a barter trade transportation scenario as well. Um, now, let's also kind of balance this here at the end with running off into the woods may not be a great idea in a lot of situations. So why are we doing this? Well, because there are the situations where it might be the best option. 
And we're also doing it again because we're building an insurance policy that pays a huge dividend. Imagine a property like this. Imagine if you can find a piece of property with all of these problems and you basically solve them over a 10 or 15 year period. And somewhere down the road, you come to a point where you need money, not the land. What do you think that property is worth compared to what you would have paid for it with inflation and with improvements and with basic property appreciation values as well? So long term, this is going to be the approach that I take. I may do it alone. I may do it with a couple of people. Uh, I'm not really sure yet. Uh, I have people talking to me all the time about trying to do it together, and I'm really kind of leery of that, but I don't know. I meet the right people in the right situation. Maybe we can make it work. Um, to me, I want to finish up with a little bit on how, how I see a group working best like this. It's absolutely the case that the more land you buy in, of this type of land, the lower the price per acre becomes. Almost to a point of diminishing returns not to buy more. Except for the fact you get to a point you just like, you know, okay, is a thousand dollars an acre a good price for land? You know, if it's got trees and woods and creeks and all that kind of stuff on it, thousand dollars an acre, that's a smoking price. So, you see, most people there, you'd say, well, then you can you buy five acres like that? And they're like, I can crap five grand. I can find it. I, hell, if I had to, I get, I, I, again, you guys know I hate credit cards, so I wouldn't do this, but to be real, you know, just be flat out realistic, you could come up with a MasterCard with a limit like that on it. Okay, so a thousand dollars an acre is cheap land. Okay, but now buy a hundred acres. Wait a minute. It's not so cheap anymore, is it? Surely not. It's, and now it's a hundred thousand dollars. You can buy a decent little house for a hundred thousand dollars. You know, I mean, it's that's that's a lot of money, even though the per acre price is cheap. But what about? Oh, I don't know. Coming up with enough money to make the down payment and payments on twenty acres at a thousand dollars an acre. Um, most people could probably come up with four or five thousand dollars as a down payment and make payments that are less than a car payment. And if you're going to finance something, leverage debt, land is the place to do it. Land and real estate. So now if we break this hundred acres up into five or six, twenty, fifteen acre-ish paddocks, and we bring a group together and we buy the land collectively, but we all agree this is my piece, this is your piece. There's some things we're going to do, like maybe this perimeter fencing thing collectively. But I get to manage my piece my way. We're not going to say, like, stay off my side. We're going to have a line you shall not cross. But this is my piece. This is my area. If I come out to hunt, I'm going to hunt here, you know. And if you've got river access, obviously you want to make sure that there's common river access. Or if it's a long piece of river frontage that all the properties abut the river at some point. And, you, you know, you don't want to have, like... The whole point of a group is because everybody gets along and everybody works together and everybody shares things uh, and shares expenses if you have to bring equipment in. So you don't want to handle it like you're all strangers. But if you each kind of have your own area, or even let's say you had 100 acres, and each of you uh, on a group of let's say like five people got together, and each people, person took a five-acre block, well, that's only 25 acres. But you got your own kind of, this is my space. I can put my little my little house thing here and, and what have you. And then the 75 is shared. I just think if there's some place that's yours, that, that it's just yours and, you know, doesn't mean that everybody doesn't end up, you know, one night all hanging with Hank and, and, and drinking beer by his campfire and drinking, you know, over, or, you know, I, I really don't know how to put this another way other than I just think that when you're doing this type of thing, 
even if it's not actually subdivided, but people have a space of their own, there's going to be a lot less animosity over certain things. You know, um, somebody not liking the, the lack of progress on uh, a communal structure. Well, if you take away the communal structure and you have your own structure, then that kind of goes away. Or even if there is a communal structure, if, if Tom feels like, well, I'm willing to do this stuff right now. I'm willing to put in the barn or whatever it is, or this little house, or this little outbuilding or whatever. But but Joe and Frank and Sam and all don't want to do the money. They don't have the money right now. They don't want. You got your own space where that. Okay, on your space you can build this thing, and you can go back to common areas when you get there. But I think having it in writing is the way to go. Um, I think having a gentleman's agreement is fine, but I think putting it in writing just basically reminds everybody of what they said. And it's not so much so it's enforceable in court, because I believe most people that would go and, and do something like this together would want to honor their agreements. What just happens with people is they get pressured by life. They tell themselves, well, that's not what I said. And within a year, they, if you gave them a lie detector test and, and you said, did you and Frank agree to X, Y, and Z? And they said no, they would pass the lie detector test. They really think, I wouldn't have said it that way, all right? Or they really, like, you both agreed on it, but it meant something to one and it meant something else to the other and, and just the basic human nature. But when it's concrete on paper and, and Frank and Tom can sit down and look at it together and go, you know what, Tom, you're, you're, you're right. I am supposed to be responsible along with you for this and you're, you're right, I haven't. I think that they just, I have seen so, There's, part, there's a reason I'm lingering on this here as I finish up today. I've seen in my own family brothers curse brothers over things like a little bit of money that was loaned one way or the other and when it was supposed to be paid back. And I've seen them both believe that they were right. And I've seen in a case with my father's brother, him just basically tell my dad, I'm not going to give you the money back. I'm not going to pay you. And I talked to a lawyer and he said, since it's not in writing, there's nothing that you can do. Well, unfortunately for that brother of my father's, he found out that an oral contract is binding if you can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in a court. And with help from me and testimony, he was able to collect on that debt. But my father and his brother went 10 years without barely speaking to each other, even though they lived across the street from each other over that. A written document would have prevented that from happening. It, it would have never happened if it had just been agreed upon in writing. They didn't think they needed it, and they did. And again, I talk to people all the time. So if you're going to get into any kind of land deal, anything that big of a deal with somebody else, put it in writing. If I was going to sell you a piece of land, you'd want a contract for the sale. You'd want a deed. You'd want all that stuff to go with it. It wouldn't just be, you know what, it's mine. Give me the money. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Cheers now. Right? You'd want it documented. And if you're going to deal with something that's that important, especially with friends document it, and friends tend to think, well, I don't need it. Well, here's how i got to put this to you at the end today. Your relationship with your friend or your family should be more important to you than your relationship with a stranger. Contracts, signed agreements, protect relationships. They really do. And if you would protect the relationship that you have with a landlord or lord that leases you office space with an agreement so that you're both always clear on the rate and the term and everything else, if that relationship is important enough to protect, 
Because it's not just about legal ramifications. Also, you want if you're renting a place from a guy, you want a good relationship with him, don't you? Right. So the contract serves two purposes: one, to be enforceable by law if either side defaults; but two, to manage and protect the relationship between the parties. We're not going to fight about it because we've already agreed to it. If the relationship with a stranger or a rough acquaintance is important enough to protect with a contract, so is a relationship with a family member or a trusted friend. It just makes sense. I know I went on long about it at the end, but it's because I've seen the damage, and I really want you guys that have great relationships not to ruin them. And it's why I've been so down on groups, and I'm turning on that. I really am. I hope you can tell that today because I see the value in it, and I know the value in it, and I want people to have it. I just want you to be careful with each other. And I think if you do that, I think you're going to have a lot better success uh, with whatever you do, whether you do it alone or with, uh, with, with people. As long as everybody knows what they're getting into, um, things go a lot better. I'd be real careful leveraging debt, too. That's the other problem is that when you're dependent upon the other person to make their portion of a payment on land and they lose a job or something, it's... Uh, You know, and what are you going to do? Keep the lights on at home or keep the, the dearlies? And for some of you guys, that's what it's going to be called, the dearlies. Tell me, that's how you're going to sell it to your wives. You know the answer to that one. And can the other party pick up uh, and make the payments? And what's going to happen? Is there going to be animosity there? And what does happen if one? All that stuff needs to be documented, guys. Uh, and sometimes you look at it and go, you know what? I really don't want to do this with anybody else. And if you feel that way when you, when you start looking at the reality of it, there's a reason. Trust your gut. With that, it's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution. 